0: Hello, thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. A summary or an overview of the different attachment tools that address uh, essentially relational patterns, the... The tendencies uh, that we have in relationships with others and also just our basic uh, expectations of others that are set very early on in life and um, can be the most difficult behaviors to address because they're stored in an unconscious area of the brain so we'll talk about what uh, these patterns are, Um, and we'll talk about how the five ways that I've been focusing on to address attachment disturbances in adults. So uh, I just want to say that when you hear, I'm going to give a brief overview of attachment styles, and don't pathologize yourself for a number of reasons. One, everybody has um multiple attachment styles you can have an attachment an inner working model that governs how you act in relationships another for core friends uh, even of another attachment style for um the way we function in workplaces and so forth and i've given talks on those different patterns and also um they are to a certain degree elastic given uh whether we are at a point in our life where we feel safe in a relationship or not. And uh, finally, as you'll see, uh, even though for most people, their attachment styles do not change throughout the course of one's life, you can actually intercede and uh, address attachment wounds and actually um, steer yourself to a more satisfactory uh, set of Perceptions, inclinations, behaviors in relationships. So, we'll talk about how meaningful change happens. So, just to give a quick overview, there's four uh, generally, from most clinicians' agree, there's four basic attachment styles. The first is secure and uh, the claim is always that 50% half of the population is secure and I always feel compelled to know that I never meet any of these people I don't know where they're hiding Uh, but I'm confident that they do exist Uh, um, these are people who in early life when They did what's called the strange test around the age of one and a half, 18 months of age. You can already see uh, certain patterns that distinguish them from infants that have insecure attachment. Secure infants have parents that are emotionally responsive, that respond to their bids for attention. They um, have parents that are interested, but not in any way swarming or overstimulating. And these children develop what's called a, a couple of things, a secure base. That's a sense that somebody's there that cares about us and having a secure base allows you to explore. It actually turns off your need to attach when you have a secure base so that, because you know you've already, you're have already you already attached to someone and it allows you to turn on your exploration system where you can go out and explore the world and interact with other people so in very young life they have this this test called the strange test where they bring babies with a primary caregiver into a room with a stranger and then after about five minutes the parent will leave the room leaving the child with the stranger and that's where the test gets its name Um, Secure babies will first cry when the mother or father leaves the room but then they will do something that is indicative of what they will continue to do throughout their lives uh, if no significant trauma happens later on, which is they'll turn to the stranger and they will bond with the stranger and develop a new, you know, a new interaction where they will essentially down-regulate their the disappointment of the mother leaving the room by connecting with another adult and they'll play with the adult and then when the parent comes back in the room, the child will turn, run back to the parent, hug the parent, and will be immediately soothed once again. So these, if you follow these people longitudinally over the course of 30, 40 years, studies have shown that these are people who will reach their full potential They'll have long-lasting relationships. They'll regulate their emotions well. They will have smaller amygdalas, which means that they will be less um, responsive. Oh, you know, uh, Their fight-flight response to stimuli will be less heightened. They will feel more secure. They will also have um, better integration of right and left hemispheres of the brain which is very important they will use both in relationships to get their needs met they'll talk about their emotions but they'll also be capable of being logical listening and inhibiting their emotional responses when necessary so they have good balance Uh, roughly 20 to 25 percent are avoidant these are children who didn't get their needs for soothing and attention met by uh, a primary caregiver or both they generally both they show little signs of distress uh, when the parent leaves the room they don't turn towards the ca- the stranger either because they've essentially developed a diminished sense of the efficacy of human bonding they give up on connecting with others to regulate their emotions and these are children that will essentially go to the toys in the room and play with the toys to stimulate themselves and they will seek what's called auto regulation. They won't try to regulate their emotions with other people. They will try to shut off their emotions through solitary endeavors. Um, These are people who grow up to be exceedingly emotionally, uh, uh, they disconnect from subcortical awareness, which is another way of saying, they train themselves to diminish their awareness of their bodies. They tend to be very focused on being hyper logical, rule bound, very strict on their needs, very con- you know, controlling in relationships. They, um, and these are people who become susceptible to depression uh, because the longer you spend in your life uh, repressing of affects your emotional experience in life the more you do that the more you empty out your life of any sense of resonance or joy in getting rid of the painful emotions you also get rid of your ability to feel joy happiness a sense of purpose you essentially become numb and that of course leads to anhedonia uh, roughly 20 to 25 percent are uh, anxious, ambivalent, these are children that had um, unreliable connections. Sometimes they did get their needs met, other times there was no attention, no availability, no sense of a pattern. This can happen in two ways, either a parent or parents who are unreliably available, or B, a parent who started out being secure up until a certain point and then due to pressures in their lives, their adult lives, essentially disappeared, maybe split from a divorce, maybe suddenly became emotionally unavailable due to other events in life, depression and so forth. So um, the anxious child uh, is continuously preoccupied with their, their primary caregiver. Even before the caregiver leaves the room, they will become fixated, nervous, and constantly be looking to anticipate whether their primary caregiver will stay. When the caregiver leaves, the child becomes despondent, won't play with toys, won't connect with the stranger, remains fixated on... Standing by the door waiting for the parent to return. When the parent does return, they cling to the parent but they're not soothed. So they remain distressed even after the return of the parent. So this child will grow up to be someone who is overbalanced, one, to uh, heightened emotional responses to any event in a relationship, they will be the one who will be pinned to the phone waiting for the text or the call, they will be preoccupied with someone even after a relationship doesn't work out, they will be fixated on the unavailable partner, they will become uh, prone to, in later life, core shame because the disappearance or the unreliability of a primary caregiver creates a feeling of there must be something unlovable about me. Why else would this be the case? Why else would I sometimes get love and sometimes not get love? And when you get that core shame, then all the other imposter syndromes and whatnot come in. I should note that for the avoidant child, the one who switches off their emotion becomes self-reliant, they also find being around other people's emotions to be Uh, very painful, and they have extremely strong distance-seeking, disconnecting uh, uh, behaviors. Whereas the anxious is preoccupied and wants to get closer, the avoidant wants to disconnect, and it's almost a cruel irony that one of the most constant connections is the anxious with the avoidant, because they both recreate the worst hits from their childhood. (laughs) For the anxious child, the uh, avoidant reminds them of the unavailable parent. For the uh, avoidant child who found their, their caregiver's emotions to be completely unsatisfactory, being with an anxious person recreates the sense of being with someone who is uh, essentially making them feel cornered or claustrophobic. So, But it's, a, it's an almost uh, strong drive that they have towards each other because the, our brains always, our, the right hemisphere, loves the familiar. Even if the familiar is toxic for us or not healthy for us, the right hemisphere always gravitates towards what it knows. It has a familiarity bias. And also, we have these internal working models that are unconscious memories stored in your right orbital frontal, which hold all the memories of the patterns of attachment in childhood, and those memories will incline you to respond towards people who recreate the same feeling in you. Your right hemisphere is extremely fast. It's much faster than your left hemisphere. And within uh, you know, a tenth of a second or a twentieth of a second, you can amazingly already get a sense of whether this guy reminds me of good old dad. Uh, emotionally distancing himself the moment I express even any sense of a an affect he's the one for me Or you know same with women oh this woman reminds me of good old mom or if you are uh, attracted to people of the same sex of course it will be the parent of the same sex so and so forth lastly there's a Group that only represents about uh, one twentieth of the population, five percent, which is disorganized and disorganized are people are children who were frightened of their caregivers. They didn't they didn't give up. they weren't, uh, they didn't yearn for more. They were just f- plain out frightened of the caregiver because the caregiver was either completely emotionally dysregulated, alcoholic, rageaholic uh, suffered from a extremely dysregulating cluster a a personality disorder and so the child and being frightened of their caregiver was put in an impossible situation because our core drive is to attach for survival and to attach to our parents but if your parent is frightening then you are stuck in this come go come go, and it leads to what is called—I'm sure you've heard of the term by now—dissociation. It leads to the child being overwhelmed. Their autonomic nervous system is completely overstimulated, so they go into a shutdown, essentially disconnected state where they're no longer present. And in adult life, these people struggle to become. Uh, self-reliant. <clears throat> they have extremely high numbers of predilection towards uh, substance abuse or other forms of self-harm, cutting, etc. And um, there are extreme dis- developmental delays uh, and also high risks of complex PTSD. If an, a child with disorganized attachment grows up to be an adult where there's a subsequent trauma then complex PTSD which is far more difficult to treat than regular PTSD which is hard enough in and of itself so longitudinal studies show that we have according to Finnegan uh roughly 75 percent of us will stay in the same attachment style from age one and a half to 40 or 50 and beyond um and that's actually a low estimate mary main uh, who's the gr- the greatest uh, attachment psychologist uh who developed the adult attachment interview uh she showed that if you throw out incidents of subsequent trauma and just look at from childhood to adult life, uh, it's about 85% of us will remain in the same attachment style. But fortunately, uh, the good news is that you can actually change the internal working models and your under your unconscious predilections through a number of practices and tools and. Um, so I've been, over the last couple of years, been giving talks on a variety of these tools. And I'm just going to run through them quickly. And then uh, it's up to you to see which one or which ones are the most likely to work for you in your life. And uh, they're all very effective. <laughs> all of these tools have been clinically shown to work. So. <clears throat> One way is obviously through the therapeutic encounter with either a reliable therapist, psychologist, even a sponsor in a program like SLAA or Al-Anon. It has to be somebody who knows how to listen without being judgmental, that knows how to create the secure container where they, where they exhibit the four key vital events of attachment, which is someone who is available, someone who is interested in our emotional life and can understand our emotions, someone who can soothe us when we're in distress and someone who can appreciate even the most minute uh, steps forward in life or our, our efforts to change. So this alone has been shown to work, but it takes a significantly long, if you just do therapy in and of itself, it's gonna take, on average, between seven and 10 years. Now, for some people, they're like, great, I'll take that, you know. That's a long time to, though, be stuck in patterns that are causing a sense of uh, being trapped or uh, not feeling completely satisfied with the robustness of your attachments and your friendships and the way you act at work and so forth. So this is only one of five tools and I would recommend even if you do do the counseling work, this is what I do with people, but even if you do it, you should really do at least one or more of these following tools. The second is to change the quality of your attachments and by which I mean to learn how to spot or to discern a secure partner and to, even though at first you won't have the somatic underpinnings uh, to really be attracted to someone who's secure, (laughs) If you have an insecure attachment because it just won't make sense. You many people I work with are either bored or they just don't find it electric, exciting. Where's the fireworks? I don't know. She just shows up when she says she's gonna show up. She calls when she says she's gonna call. He You know, when it's a Friday night, he says, you know, he asks three days before, can we make a plan? He doesn't wait and then write a text saying, sup. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, at first that is very confusing for somebody who's got uh, insecure attachment. Um, So, uh, for the anxious, individual, someone who is preoccupied in relationships and very often chasing after love from people who are incapable of intimacy in any sustained degree, the anxious person has to overcome their boredom uh, or their, uh, essentially their fixations with the unavailable. They have to finally hit bottom with chasing after love from those who are not available and they have to be willing to do the work it's not as difficult as you would think to spot a secure person if you go out on a date and you're meeting somebody and you reveal or disclose an uh an emotional uh feeling that's un uh that's uncommon rather than trying to be funny or happy or you know upbeat actually push yourself to say something like oh you know uh go you know coming here, I found that I was anxious or I was just tired and I was thinking of canceling I just you know uh you know I just feel beaten down by this whole process <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so and then what you do is you watch very closely the um the person will be interested and will not try to say, "Oh, it's going to be great. We're going to have a great time." Or they won't suddenly change their the way they are oriented towards you. The uh, the avoidant will immediately start shifting away on the revelation of a difficult, unsuspected emotion. Their body language will give them away. Um, They will not be interested in finding out more, they won't normalize your emotion, they'll try to change your emotion, or they will uh, try to change the subject. Waiter, it's bring us the menu, you know. Um, So, (coughs) uh, also, if you learn to create, and we'll talk about this next, the secure experience in you, you go and you check yourself throughout the interaction, see if you have the somatic markers that indicate that you feel safe with this person if you don't have those somatic markers if instead you have the somatic markers of excitement where there's this tingling there's this needing to keep them interested you know desire to to uh, make them want to like you uh, then or there's some sense of charge to it Uh, If you don't have the feelings of what it's like to be safe with your best friend or with somebody that you can trust, then that's a real somatic marker indicating that this is not someone to pursue. You need to feel safe. Now obviously, if you don't feel safe with anyone, then get more information, but... (laughs) assuming you, you know what it's like to feel safe with someone where you can relax and disclose and be open about your experience look for that feeling that you get because your right hemisphere which creates along with the midbrain these somatic markers won't lie and the most important thing in a relational dynamic is to feel safe not to feel you know some kind of electric charge hopefully you get a little bit of that but the feeling to look for is the feeling of somatic ease. The avoidant will constantly uh, need to overcome their distance seeking, will need to know how to relax when they are around someone who is uh, clearly not going to jump into bed too quickly. Uh, unfortunately, Anxious people to try to solidify the relationship too quickly will trade sex for intimacy and will essentially try to, uh, will be all too willing to have sex or intimacy, physical intimacy too early in the process to somehow concretize the relationship. So secure people will generally not do that. They're people who unfortunately will not likely be on Tinder or it <laughs> <laughs> or. In very diminished amounts because most of them are in relationships. Uh, If they are not in a relationship they tend to first try to connect with people first before you know trying to hook up. Um, Three, visualizing creating the secure attachment experience internally Studies have shown by people like uh, Brown and Elliot, who have pioneered in this work at Harvard and at their clinic, uh, which is associated with Harvard, have um, uh, shown that in visualizing a secure attachment figure, in some of their work, it could be an ideal parent that we didn't get in our childhood, or it could be an ideal relationship figure in the future. <laughs> In visualizing any figure that, is, that cares about us, that's reliably available, that's interested in our emotions, that is uh, in no way uh, trying to get away or disappearing, you create the physiological somatic markers of what it feels like to be secure. And then you use those markers to discern uh, whether you're on the right path with someone. You have to be able to know what it feels like to be secure in order to actually respond to someone who's secure. Um, so, we're going to be doing uh, a version of this visualizing. We're going to be basing it on an early Buddhist practice, Devanusati and Buddha Nusati, and Kaganusati. We're going to be visualizing individuals, real or imagined. Who, are, who care about us, who are interested, who provide those four key attachment needs of proximity or availability, uh, interest, soothing, and appreciation. Four, let me see how I'm doing. I'm probably, well, I'm, OK. I'm OK. I've been talking really fast, so that's probably a lot. No. I'm the fastest-talking Buddhist teacher <laughs> in the West. <laughs> Doesn't sound particularly, you know, I still have, after now 15 plus years of teaching, I still have that little bit of, you know, nervous energy to try to keep you interested. (laughs) I don't have that in counseling. In counseling I'm like so, so so, so happy to see you. But here I'm like, (laughs) hey, Anyway, uh, I don't know where that came from. Just needed a a break from the whole attachment spiel. Uh, So uh, capacity four is the capacity to accurately narrate our lives. This is where the internal chatter known as your thoughts come into play. Studies have shown that secure people are capable of narrating their life in an intelligible, logical way that other people can follow, that they also can do what's called mentalize, which means understand the underlying motivations and causes of other people's behaviors. They're very good at that. So they're not confused or mystified by other people's actions and behaviors, especially people they're in relationships with they can deeply understand why they behave the way they do. Um, So for instance, if I had been asked to, uh, before I did a a lot of therapy, Buddhist recovery and attachment work, you had asked me to talk about my father who was a, for many years of my life, a very violent, drunk, alcoholic who would Regularly beat up my mom and was physically Threatening all the time with myself. I would have not been able to Create a coherent understanding of why I just would say I you know, he was an asshole I have no idea why he was so hell-bent on torturing the people that he Supposedly loved why he was so uh, prone to drinking when you know, uh, and even after he caused so much harm, and uh, you know I had no i i just didn't feel safe with him, and all I wanted to do was get away, blah blah blah. but after years of doing attachment work <coughs> therapy, and all the uh, tools that I have at my disposal, now I would narrate in terms of my father grew up in an immigrant fa- family, his mother was extremely um had a very borderline-like personality. She was prone to extreme emotional states. He never felt safe in his childhood. He went away to war where he had uh, additional traumas and sought to regulate his emotions through alcohol and drugs. And even though he tried to form (coughs) bonds with others and tried to, at times, be soothing, his anything that would trigger him would lead to bottoming out again and would lead to him recreating the wounds of his childhood, blah, 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 blah. But at least now I don't view myself in narrating my story as uh, it's not about me anymore. And it's not confusing why he acted the way he did. I'm completely comfortable knowing and understanding what led to that. I can coherently talk about my life in a way that other people can understand and that's one of the hallmarks of essentially healing and becoming what's called earned secure i was not born secu- i was not raised in a secure family my mother was available thankfully and caring so i had a secure ish experience with her but with my father i was <clears throat> disorganized terrified of him and so it took years of work to reparative work and therapy and in making sure I wound up in secure relationships. And over the course of time, I now have a, earn, all the hallmarks of earned secure. But it was a long journey. Um, people who are dismissing avoidance, uh, you can always tell them because they minimize every emotional event in their childhood when they narrate their life. Uh, literally it'll be something like well I don't know it was a pretty good childhood I mean we had everything needed you know we had a roof over our head, food over, food on the table and you know my father was you know generally out of work and depressed about it but that was okay we just made do I'm Like, cool <laughs> stop right there you know that is not okay from the perspective of a child and that's the hallmark of someone who's not integrating emotional experiences into their adult biography and if you cannot integrate emotions into your uh, attachment life then when you're in a relationship you'll constantly not understand other people's emotions You'll constantly feel claustrophobic. You'll, in arguments, try to always solve them logically rather than understand the emotional feelings of your partner. You won't also be able to process wounding experiences in your life, and you'll be prone to retreat every time there's any conflict or anything. You'll just be prone to act out or seek Uh, sex from yet another partner, you'll always have one foot out the door. Um, So the anxious person, because they tend to have heightened emotional responses to any attachment experiences in their life, literally elevate even the most benign interpersonal experiences into some indication of abandonment or that their partner is unstable or something like that. The bulk of my work is with uh, people who have anxious attachment, and I love it, because they are amazing. (laughs) They are really amazing. They're so awesome. They have the ability to narrate with such details events that happened four weeks ago, like literally something like, um, well, then, then they said, (laughs) <laughs> blah, blah 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 and i turning my head 45 degrees, <laughs> ankle saw well, that's just completely fucked up. And then as I walked slowly towards the door and reached my door hand, the handle, I said, me, 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 To which they said, me. Mm. And I thought, well, okay, I'm just done. But Then 15, 17 minutes later, they sent a text which said, would you like to see the text? I'm like, oh, no, okay. <laughs> And this hyper-narration will go on, and very often an hour will pass, and I'm transfixed. (laughs) Though, clearly, that makes it very difficult to make sense of one's life, to make sense of what's going on in a relationship when everything is, you know, when there's this constant expectation of abandonment. Every, if you are hunting for signs of abandonment unconsciously, you will find them, even if they're not there, or you will raise uh, every little experience to the role of being abandoning. So these are people that when they narrate their lives, literally will, <coughs> because there's so much material that will get packed in, there'll be incredible jumps of time, there'll be sudden, you know, uh, Uh, There'll be this like minutiae there will be like adding answering questions that are not there Um, And lastly the disorganized will just be unfortunately and tragically uh, At the beginning before you do significant work with them They will be incoherent in the sense that they won't even answer the question they'll talk about something else Or if they do talk about something wounding, they won't have any emotional response. But when they talk about something that is completely benign, then they will have a flood of fear or overwhelm. There's essentially, their nervous systems are erratic. They have unreliable responses to stimuli. So they cannot construct a coherent narrative of their life. And that makes it very difficult to even develop a robust sense of one's of resilience, a sense of of knowing what your skills are and picking yourself back up after you have setbacks. So disorganized people really struggle to build careers or to take any um, positive, proactive steps for themselves. So lastly, and then we will jump to the meditation. The last tool besides learning how to narrate and that's something you can develop in either therapy or through practice of journaling and writing out experiences, pushing yourself to ask questions of attachment figures, probing to learn more about the emotion, underlying emotional motivations of important people in your life. That developing mentalizing is key to developing a, an, a coherent narrative of life. The last tool is the most recent. It's called metacognitive monitoring, and essentially what that means is the ability to read other people's nonverbal expressions. And guess what? This will be no surprise to you, but secure people are very good at reading other people's uh, nonverbal cues, their facial expressions, their body language. And so when a secure person is narrating a story, they will stop and will ask, am I being unclear? Do you need any more information? Do you need, you know, is there anything that you're not following? They will literally read when somebody is no longer following their narration. They have a very good ability to do what's called error monitoring, which is if you are, um, uh, you're there, able to know when in they as they tell uh, an experience to another person when their perceptions might be flawed they they, they know okay this is where i get a little bit unclear wh- why this person acted or what exactly was going on the other parts i feel somewhat confident uh, most important they have the ability to discern uh their perceptions from the uh, what we might call reality people who are secure know that their interpretations of interpersonal experience are just an interpretation, they're not the correct one, they're not the right one. So, when they're in an argument, they are less likely to say, No, that's not what happened. You said blah blah blah, you didn't say blah blah. They're not likely to override somebody's uh input or emotional experience because no, my I know what's true I'm I I saw what really happened you are crazy or you don't know what happened or you're just changing the story they are interested even if they really believe they're being uh, someone is not being truthful they're interested even in why what the person is experiencing why the person feels the need to uh represent the experience in such a way and they're willing to revise their perception they don't stick dogmatically to one perception now of course in the case of abuse this is not the case uh there is a real truth if somebody's being physically or verbally abusive but in most interpersonal dynamics the ability to revise your perception is a very important tool to develop because it makes you more capable of working through conflict. Insecure people tend to be not so good. They tend to at that, they tend to stick far, they tend to cling to their perception and resist any other interpretation. They, even in long-term therapy, it could take a long while before they become comfortable in exploring different perceptions of what might have been going on they really struggle to mentalize which means understand the underlying emotional drives of their of significant others and so the ability to challenge our perceptions to actively seek out uh, other perspectives and to regularly force ourselves to practice the tools of looking for additional perspectives is exceptionally valid practice and useful practice in developing secure attachments in life. So those are five tools. I hope something was interesting in this talk, and now we're going to actually put the third tool and practice where we visualize the secure experience and where we actually develop the, um, the uh, somatic markers. This is an ancient Buddhist practice called Devanusati. Buddha called this, this was one of the 10 recollections the Buddha urged practitioners to do on a regular basis. So we're first gonna start out by relaxing Finding your most comfortable seated position. Don't try to think your way into a good posture. Just try to close your eyes and just find what feels like a good balanced position. And then take a moment just to lift your head, your chin up a little bit so that It's like you're looking at the top of a building, and we're doing that to forestall any tendency of slouching in front of the chest. That really uh, is what is the chief culprit of having difficulty in meditation, just having a head that just collapses in front of our chest. and we'll take our, the three breaths I like to do at the beginning of my practice, just to down-regulate the, any stress or any hypervigilance. Of course, if you're to check out, there's another set of tools we can practice as well, but just for soothing and calming, just take a nice full in-breath through the nose and squinch the muscles in the face, just Slightly clench, make that exercise your cranial muscles, and then as you breathe out slowly through the mouth, softening, releasing the jaw, unwrinkling the brow, encouraging your eyes to settle behind the eyelids. Take another full breath in and lift the shoulders up, rotating them back and then dropping them with the out breath. <laughs> so if you were in a startle state or in a hypervigilant state, the shoulders clench, the arms tucked to the side of the body, you go into a very defensive posture but if you keep your chest open, relaxed, you're already sending a very <clears throat> clear message up to the right amygdala and the, and the right insula informing both subcortical and cortical regions of your brain that you're safe, that you're not under attack, that you can relax. And then for a third breath, as you breathe in through the nose, bloat your belly out like you're pulling in the breath to the belly. Nice round beach ball. And then as you breathe out slowly through the mouth, soften the belly. So abdominal breathing is a really wonderful way to self-soothe. When people are distressed or anxious, they tend to, or especially having a panic attack, the features or expressions of the breath are largely in the chest and shoulders, also very in the top part of the body. But if you are relaxed, you probably have noticed at one point that the largest expression is the belly. Your abdomen will be the most prominent, very often, uh, manifestation of inhalation and exhalation. And of course, that establishes to midbrain that you're in a safe situation. And most influentially, if you want to soothe. The length of your exhalation is key. When you are stressed, you tend to, all humans tend to focus on, or their in-breaths become more prominent. So if you want to wake yourself up, you do the opposite of these tools. You focus on your in-breath, you create a strong, maybe slight tightness in the belly and you tighten the shoulders. You might even create some like feeling of upward energy in the body. But if you want to down regulate, emphasize your out breaths, releases uh, acetylcholine. It engages your bagel break, which uh, slows down your heart rate, reduces your blood pressure, stops stems the secretion of cortisol. <laughs> now that we've got the body in a, hopefully closer to a state that's optimal, try to establish in your mind, a state of where you're not trying to attain anything. You're not trying to achieve anything. Meditation is not about arriving at some massive insight. It's about relieving ourselves of the burdens that trigger and keep us unable to relax and connect with our lives. So you don't want to get anywhere. You want to, in fact, just be here. Everything you need is right here you don't want to be allowing your mind to race ahead of your body anymore you want to have your mind and your body be completely reconnected landing fully in this moment not trying to get anywhere else not trying to figure out anything not trying to (coughs) do anything other than let go of concerns about anything that's not present right now. The only thing to be concerned about is how can I just be more kind to myself right now? Each time your mind wanders away, just escort it back. There's nothing wrong when your mind wanders away. It's been trained to do that through our adult and even our childhoods, we abandon the body to as a form of escaping our emotions. We get lost in thought as a way to feel safer than just being connected with our feelings. But now is the time to return and embrace all those core emotional needs that have been pushed down, run from, avoided, shamed. Just be the ideal parent for yourself right now. Anything you experience is okay. It deserves your attention and care your kindness. No more judging. Whenever a feeling or any difficult internal experience arises, just greet it and ask yourself how you can soothe yourself to stay with whatever needs to be felt. And when your mind drifts away, just keep bringing it back to a feeling in your body, any feeling. Your body is the portal back to your home, the present, your life. So at this point, I invite you to just allow awareness of the body to be a little bit, to gradually recede slightly into the background and bring your attention to the area of your mind where you can visualize images, maybe just for a moment. Imagine a place you know well. It's sometimes helpful when doing a visualization meditation just to prime ourselves even though we may well know how to imagine but just practice visualizing your room or a place you know very well. And then bring to mind the time either recently or in the past where you felt emotionally disconnected from others, where you felt a lack of reliable support. And the key is to be as free to use imagination and creativity as you want. There's no limit. Don't base it on any real person in your life unless you're absolutely certain that person provides you a sense of the secure experience. Use your imagination to visualize a protective, caring, non-judgmental, interested being. This could be a person, either someone that seems to have those attributes, someone I know used uh, Mr. Roberts. Or it could be an amalgamation. Or it could just be even a spiritual entity, what the Buddha called Devas, a protective spirit. You don't have to believe in anything metaphysical, it's just creating in your mind, just the experience of creating what it would be like to be with another mind that cares about us. Even if it's difficult, just try to imagine Try to be detailed if you can visualize someone, what they would look like, where they would be. If there's the existence in your life of someone you really feel you can disclose anything to, someone who Who's just interested in what's going on with you and takes the time to listen and care, just visualize them. Whatever it takes to create an imaginary experience of connection and then take if you'd like a hand and put it in your heart center. Breathing into wherever you feel any warmth holding the image of this supportive figure and just allow your body to relax into whatever feels the the most natural easy comfortable state it can and while you can to the degree you can create this state of ease and safety with another being. Find in your body those sensations that let you know that you're safe. How do you know that you feel relaxed, comfortable, at ease? Is it in your chest? Is it in an openness, or is it in a relaxing of the muscles behind the neck or the throat? Is there a softening behind the eyes? Do the the slight muscles in the forehead feel less clenched or do you feel your stomach slightly softening? Where do you feel safety in your life? Wherever you feel the somatic markers of safety, get to know them because these will be the very tools that will let you know in friendships and relationships. This is the North Star that guides you. This is the feeling to always cultivate and to look for. And now Bring yourself to a time in the future where you are in an ideal relationship, one where you feel taken care of, where you feel connected to someone in just the right way. They're not in any way trying to, they're not in any way disinterested or trying to go or in any risk of leaving. And yet when you need space, you can have it. And in this visualization, just imagine the sense of someone sitting or standing just the right distance that makes you feel comfortable. You could be in the kitchen cooking a meal or relaxing on a couch on a Weekend or walking through a farmer's market or a park, anything that brings, that cultivates, that creates the sense of a secure experience. And just ask yourself what would it feel like to have this ideal partner? What would it feel like? And again, just get to know how you feel when you are secure. moment I'm going to ring the bell and uh, just when you hear the sound just open your eyes enough to look at the ground in front of you don't look around the room at first the reason is we want to integrate sight into awareness in such a way that we don't allow awareness of our body to be pushed out by sight and thought you want to keep your mindful awareness of your body bring it with you into your life so the benefit of doing a visualization practice of secure attachment has been shown to significantly address attachment wounds in as little as six months the good news is that you don't have to practice it for a long time. You can do it for as little as a minute, but you need to do it on a regular basis every day.